If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 695. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. It's a great way to support the show. Plus, right now, if you're listening to this during the week, last week of August, first week of September, I've got a new class out, Radical Republicans. Just use the coupon code RADICALS and you get $60 off. It's a great class. I'm going to talk about it again today in this show, but you're going to want it. Plus, you can buy other classes there. I've got over 20 for purchase. And that keeps this podcast free of charge. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, click on the Super Thanks button under the video. That You can throw a few pennies my way that way. You can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the Support tab, throw a few pennies my way that way. Or go to the Shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Lots of great ways to support the show financially, anchor.fm. You can support the show that way. You can subscribe there. So many ways to support the show financially. But... You can also rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can give it a five-star review. You can comment on it at YouTube. That helps the algorithm. You can do all those things to help support the show and get more people listening to it because it's vital, right? I mean, we are in a struggle for the future of the way we think about American government, the way we think about American conservatism. All those things are vital for the future of America, for us, right, as as, uh, the people of the state. So, Go on out there and do those things. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. I do appreciate all of your support and everything you do for the show. So let's talk about the show. In fact, this is a listener-generated episode. Somebody sent me this uh, article. It's in the new Criterion, and it's by our old friend, Victor Davis Hanson. Now, I'm probably going to have to cover this article in two episodes because it's really long. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just go through parts of it Um, but I think it's vital to read the whole thing. And it's vital to read the whole thing because of all the things I said yesterday on the show about the Radical Republicans. This is example, a great example, you know, Exhibit A, for example, of how the neoconservatives and the West Coast Straussians are so uh, infused with Radical Republicanism, they can't see see around it, right? I mean, this, this is what drives their ideology, you might as well have had Charles Sumner or Thad Stevens or John Bingham or uh, Henry Winter Davis or take your pick of a radical Republican, Benjamin Wade, people I talk about in the, in the course, write this particular essay because it just simply regurgitates everything the radical Republicans said during the 1850s and 1860s. And it's historically ignorant. I mean, Hansen, uh, I, look, I'll say this. Hansen wrote a book that I really like, Carnage and Culture. I liked it a lot. Um, it's one of those books that gets into Greek history and Roman history, and it's it's fascinating. He also wrote some really bad stuff. He's a Lincolnite. He thought that uh, you know Lincoln's selection of generals and the way he waged the war was the proper way to do it, 
particularly when he got to the end of the war and he finally settled on Sherman and Grant. Uh, Hansen hates the South. He's always equated the South with the modern progressive left. And it's that kind of nonsense that drives his political ideology. He's from California, and he doesn't like what the left is doing in California, and he thinks that this is the old South come to California. Now, this ignores a lot of scholarship. In fact, uh, even progressive or leftist historians have spent a lot of time looking at the South. One of the more famous books on this is a book by Lacey Ford. And Lacey Ford went out and said, okay, is the South a feudal society? Because this is what people had said for years. The South was neo-feudal. And the reason they said that, even some of the old Southern historians, the reason they said that is because uh, Southerners like to read supposedly Sir Walter Scott, and they thought of themselves as neo-feudal. This is uh, what, the, what the agrarians sometimes talked about, Frank Owsley and others. They called it you know, kind of a neo-feudal society. But what historians have figured out over all the years since that particular uh, since that particular argument was made, is that that's not true. Uh, that the South was just as robust economically and just as diverse economically outside of the factories, right, where the North had factories, the South, didn't, they had, you know, some people will call them factories in the field. But other than that, right, most Northerners were not factory owners. Most Northerners did not work for a factory. Most Northerners were farmers. They were still an agricultural people, particularly when you got to the Midwest. And what's been discovered is that in the South, the per capita, even when you remove slavery from the equation, right? When you put slaves into the equation and count them as property, Southern per capita was always higher than Northern per capita all the time. I mean, this until after the war, the South was the more wealthy section. Even when you remove slave labor and you just count farms and land holdings and equipment and other things in, in production, Southerners still had on these small and middling farms, a higher per capita than Northerners. So Southerners, the Southern economy, it was easier to make money in the South, even if you didn't own slaves, which we know that the vast majority of Southerners did not own slaves. And even those that did own slaves, you're talking about one or two, typically under three, right? So the large plantations that we often have this image of, this is the South, it's all these large plantations with all these gangs of slaves, that was a small, very small minority of Southern society. But the most Southerners owned, didn't own you know, thousands and thousands of acres. They didn't own hundreds of slaves. In fact, most no Southerners didn't own slaves at all. 75% didn't. So we know that the South was not what Victor Davis Hanson is characterizing it as, right? It, and it had a very vibrant economy for these free landowners. This is what the agrarians were saying, right? We needed small independent farms and they weren't, they, they believed in a Southern agrarian economy of small independent farms. And they also thought that was the way when you got to the Midwest and they needed it throughout the United States. That small independent farmer was going to be more important to the backbone of America than anything else. Jefferson talked about this. Everyone talked about this. And there was a lot of it in the South. And these small independent farms were typically more productive than they were in the North. So this whole idea that the South is governed by an oligarchy, and Hanson's going to talk about it. The South is governed by an oligarchy. The South is governed by an anti-democratic majority. 
uh, uh, I'm sorry, anti-democratic minority who controlled the reins of power and abused the majority, right? There's also been discussions of this, right? Was the South really anti-democratic? Well, no. Did these people that were not large plantation owners not have a role in the, in the political system? Well, clearly they had a role in the political system. In fact, the South, just like the North, had universal white male suffrage. By the 1850s, everyone had it, right? So this is not something that was uh, so unique to the North, right? Peculiar to the North, universal white male suffrage. It was in the South, too. So when you look at the 1860 secession conventions, for example, and you look at the fact that these were voted on by the people of the states, all of the people participated in that process. Now, I know you have people like Stephanie McCurry and others who run around saying, well, but that wasn't really Democrat. These people really were just, they were just duped. They were just abused. They, this was, they, they didn't know what they were doing. We know from a tremendous amount of literature that's been produced, and not by pro-Southern historians, in the last 40 years, the last 50 years, that the South was more robust politically and economically than any of these nincompoops who ran around in the 1850s and 60s and called it you know, oligarchic or feudal or Victor Davis Hanson like to say. This is what I said yesterday. If you want to understand the ideology of the modern Straussian neoconservative right, then you got to understand the radical Republicans because these radical Republicans are driving the rhetoric of the modern neoconservative and Straussian right. They really haven't gotten beyond the 1850s. They use all the same talking points when it comes to things like nullification too, secession, all that stuff. They say the same things when it comes to how they describe the South. They say the same things. Now, why is this important? Because if you denigrate the South and you denigrate the political leadership of the South in particular, you're destroying American conservatism. Now, I know why they're doing it. I can understand it because nobody wants to champion slavery. And nobody is championing slavery when you say, you know what, these Southern leaders had something to say about federalism. They had something to say about central power. They had something to say about American society. They were right on a lot of things. They weren't right on slavery, right? We can say that. They're not, they're not correct on slavery. We don't want to, nobody wants to bring back slavery. And it also creates a false dichotomy because when you, when you talk about the, the Old South, Hansen gives you the impression that the North was this happy land of free people, egalitarian, anti-racist free people, which of course we know is not the case either. So you create a false dichotomy. The North is anti-racist, the South is racist. The North was pro-free black people, the South was anti-free black people. We know more free blacks lived in the South than they did in the North. I mean, just because of the, of the number of people, black people that live in the South. We know that during the 1850s that uh, the Republican Party and their slogan, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, it was all about white supremacy in the Western territories. They wanted no blacks there whatsoever. And we know that they characterized the South as a land of miscegenation and mongrelism. That's what, how they described it. Mixed race people, where the North was this happy land of not egalitarianism, but of free, pure white people. It wasn't a multiracial society in any way. We know that free blacks in the North were not treated well. Uh, we know this because the evidence is there, right? So this kind of stuff that Hansen puts out there, and conservatives will eat it up, and they'll start saying, oh, yeah, 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 the South. We don't want to be like the South. And at the end of this piece, which I'll probably have to get to tomorrow, I'm going to get through... 
uh, a portion of it today, and then I'll cover the rest of it tomorrow. He makes a statement that somehow the South is like the North in the 1850s, and the North is like the South in the 1850s, or at least California is. That's what he's focusing most of his attention, his vitriol on, is Northern California and Silicon Valley. That these people are just Old South oligarchs. What about Old North oligarchs? What about these factory owners that would force people to work, mostly women, by the way, and children, force people to work you know, 12 hours a day, six days a week? What about that? For, for paltry, barely survivable wages. I mean, this is... I mean, what about that? What about the, the industrial slavery, essentially, that was developed in Britain in the North? I mean, you want to see some pretty horrible working conditions, look at the Lowell textile mills. They were awful. Look at textile mills in general in the North. It was, it was, uh, it was miserable. Nobody wanted to do that stuff. So, again, you've created a false dichotomy. And, look, Southerners would point this out. Okay, yeah, you're going to criticize our labor system. They defended it on kind of on a what we would call welfare today, which, again, I mean, you can look at um, lots of different arguments in that time period about labor. They defended it basically on a modern welfare system, but they would often criticize the North for their particular labor system, which they said was inhumane and cruel because of how they treated women and children primarily, and a lot of immigrants. There's no there's no unemployment compensation. There's no uh, there's no uh, personal injury compensation. There's none of that. I mean, you don't go to work, you don't eat, you die. So this is how Southerners would often sell their system. And uh, so the, the North is not free from the stain of being abusive to its own workers. There's no paternalism in the North, right? Southerners would often argue it was a paternalistic system, whereas the North was inhumane because of its, its uh, reluctance to even recognize the humanity of its workers of its wage laborers, of its industrial workers. So this is remarkable that you still have this argument being made in 2022 after all the evidence is out there, right? After all the evidence. And in fact, one thing Hanson will say too, and this gets in the 1619, look, a 1619 project person might as well have written this, that somehow, uh, you know, the, the South was, uh, the 1619 people say, of course, the South was ultra-capitalist, right? And they, they were... They were abusive and everything else. and But, of course, the South was, uh, in their mind, they weren't capitalists at all. Uh, but that's the, essentially the argument that Hans is making. The South was ultra-capitalist. Ultra-capitalist. Again, 1619 Project. The New History of Capitalism. Eugene Genovese would have had fits over this stuff. So, let's get into the piece because uh, it's so bad. I mean, it's nauseatingly bad. But the title is The Old South Shall Rise Again by Victor Davis Hanson on the Economic System of Silicon Valley. This is what it, and of course, you know, also writes for the new criterion, Alan Gelzo. Alan Gelzo writes for the new. So all these neocons, all these, these people are the radical Republicans of 2022. It's the same thing. They're going to regurgitate the same, the same nonsense. So he says, we naturally assume the Confederacy was defined by slavery. Of course, the secessionist nation of 11 southern states was born of, fought for, and died mostly over that particular heinous, particularly heinous institution. Well, that's, again, from the first sentence or second sentence of the piece, he's already off track. We know he's ignoring James McPherson. We know most southerners didn't fight for or die for slavery. They didn't do it at all. And we do know that 
even though Southerners did talk a lot about slavery, it was a it was a reason why they talked about. It. There's actually a very important speech by Jefferson Davis, which is the next class at McClanahan Academy, where he talks about the reason slavery was made an issue was power. This is Michael Holt, right? So so again, Victor Davis Hanson is ignoring a whole slew of historical literature when he makes this kind of statement. You know who else made these kind of statements? The radical Republicans of the 1850s and 60s. So he's just echoed the radical Republicans. From the beginning, that's what he's doing. This is why you got to take that class. It's why you got to get McClanahan Academy radical Republicans. It's so good. When you you're just gonna, you're going to go you're going to be able to look at this stuff once you take McClanahan Academy courses and dissect it all. I won't need to do it for you. You'll be able to go through it, dissect it all and say, "Well, this is stupid. This is stupid. This is stupid." I mean, well, this is where this comes from. This is where this comes from. You'll do you'll do a better job of looking at stuff like this than most Americans ever will. It's I guarantee it. So it seems heretical even to suggest that the Confederate model could possibly help explain the increasingly deranged pathologies of contemporary blue state America, given its ostensibly progressive agenda. So he's saying it's it's heretical to say that the old South is anything like blue state progressive America, but the methodologies, values, and guiding ideology of the Old South can help us fathom the strange paradoxes of our 21st century progressive blue state model, most notably in California, and especially Northern California's Silicon Valley. The latter has become a modern version of the single-crop antebellum king cotton economy and culture. Whether we look to the staggering accumulation of wealth in the Bay Area, or the plethora of homeless people and service workers living in trailers and campers parked near the tech hubs of the world. So here he's setting up this vision of this massive form of inequality. That the South was so unequal, and that's just like the North. You know where this is actually true? Factory cities in New England. Factory cities in New England. And northern cities where you had slums. And, and look, Southerners, and not just Southerners, but people talked about this. Where you had slums. We, you go look at a picture of early 20th century northern urban America. Go, I mean, look. Go look at Jacob Reese, and I know he's a propagandist, but go look at these photographs of these cities. How the other half lives, Jacob Reese, R I I S. Go look at this stuff and tell me that this is the old South. This is the new North. This is new America. This is what the American economy looked like and what it produced for its workers and its people. The South had a lot of free homesteads. Well, he's going to say, well, these people lived in log cabins. They did, they did. So did most people in the North, right? I mean, look, Little House on the Prairie is Wisconsin, and these people live in a cabin, just like Southerners lived in a cabin. I mean, this is what people lived in. It's what they had. So... All this this uh, image that he's trying to portray is just complete garbage. Under both systems, a tiny elite assumed that its wealth and power were a result of superior wisdom and morality, and so naturally felt entitled to establish social mores and public policy in general. This was the entire United States. To say there's no rich oligarchy driving American policy in the North? The image he's giving you is that Northern politicians were all self-made men, that they came from their boot, they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, and that's how they made it in society. This isn't true at all. 
You had wealthy industrialists all over the place in the North. Look, Thad Stevens, the radical Republican, made a fortune on iron foundries during the war. He wasn't some... Uh, now, he, he didn't originally come from a lot of money, but most Southerners didn't do that either. You go look at a plantation home. Now, by the 1850s, right, particularly with sugar production, you started seeing some massive plantation homes in the South, but most would be smaller than uh, modern houses. These weren't, these weren't massive palatial estates at all when it comes to the size of the house and what these people were able to, to afford. It just wasn't the case. But that's the idea we're getting here, that these plantation homes, maybe they're, maybe they're 3,000 square feet. Now, in California, that'll cost you a fortune, 3,000 square feet. Other parts of the United States, not so much. I mean, it's, it's expensive, but it's not unreasonable for a lot of families to be able to afford something like that. And again, who drove northern public policy? Well, uh, the elites, particularly the financial elites of northern society as well. And again, his image is based on you know, someone like Lincoln, who was his frontiersman coming up. Well, what was Andrew Jackson, right? I mean, uh, you know, a self-made man. Born in a log cabin. Uh, you, you had this all throughout the South, too. It, it, it's not just the North, right? It's, it's the United States. A lot of people were doing this. They were on the frontier. They're, they're frontiersmen. Look, what is John C. Calhoun? What is, who is Patrick Calhoun, Calhoun's father? But a frontiersman pulling himself by his bootstraps, pulling himself up by his bootstraps. And, of course, his son would have a little bit of rearing because of that, but not a lot. He would go to university in the North. He would have some money. But the first Calhoun was not that way. The resulting orthodoxy protected the wealthy and privileged at the expense of an underclass while driving out the middle and working classes. Again, this is not true in the South. You had a lot of people in the middle and working classes in the South. A lot of people, right? In fact, the majority of Southerners were middle and working class. To give an example, the conditions of the roads and freeways of some of the current wealthiest states, such as California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York, nonetheless rank in many surveys among the poorest ten in the nation. So because these freeways are bad, that shows that these people are just like the South. And here's how, here's how he says it. That disconnect is easily, ear, I'm sorry, eerily reminiscent of the antebellum South, whose shipments abroad counted for over 60% of the value of all U.S. exports, while the region lagged far behind the North in railroad, turnpike, and canal mileage. Well, why is that, Hanson? Why did it lag behind? Well, there's a reason for that. You look at a map. Put a map up and look at all the navigable rivers in the South. Why would they need canal? Why would they need a canal? Right? Why did they need that stuff? Well, they didn't. And you did have it in some areas. For example, you had the Augusta Canal and Augusta, Georgia. You had some areas that had canals, but they didn't need them because you put your stuff on a river and you send it downstream. And it gets out to the Gulf of Mexico or it gets to the Atlantic coast. And people did just fine shipping their products to market. Right? Railroad production. Southerners were building railroads. They built them. They were lagging behind railroad production. Well, where did this stuff come from? So, look, he's, he's making an argument. This is funny. He's making an argument um, 
against the South based on federally funded, federally funded internal improvements, or even state-funded internal improvements. You want to know what those things did in New York? They bankrupt, the Erie Canal bankrupt the state of New York, right? Because it was unprofitable. What was happening with federally funded internal improvements is you were creating massive oligarchies in America, economic oligarchies. You look at all the people that made money on railroads in the postbellum period. This is the northern economic model now that Hanson is so insistent that everyone adopts. This is where you got all the big railroad magnets. This is where you got the Vanderbilts. So we got the Carnegies. So we got the Rockefellers. All of the money that was created through corporate welfare. Now, there was no tax. This is what Southerners, well, wait a second, we're not taxing these people. We're create, helping create all their wealth because of all the money funneling into them from the general government in certain way, in one way or another, whether it's tariffs or federally funneled internal improvements or central banking system, all of that. But yet, we're not taxing them. So this is, when you look at these states, right? Well, um, they pay a lot of taxes in those states. I guess they're just misappropriating the funds. But this is a problem with this kind of state economic model. What con the conservative is ripping the South for not believing in unconstitutional federally funded internal improvements. See, this is where you, you can't make this stuff up. This is why Victor Davis Hanson is not really a conservative. He's a 19th century progressive. That's all he is, a 19th century progressive. The antebellum Southern economy prompted general economic and social stagnation for the non-elite and vast economic, social, and cultural inequalities, as a tech company does today. Is, is he writing this, or is Howard Zinn writing this? Is he writing this, or is uh, some crazy leftist talking about social and, and economic inequality writing this? I mean, because he's worried about that. Now, is he, is he writing this, or is some leftist writing this today? You see, this is where these people get so beyond themselves. They get over their skis and they just fall because they start using the same arguments the left uses to attack the South and supposedly that shores up their position, but it really doesn't. It doesn't do anything. Now, he's trying to point out the hypocrisy of the left. And now, look, I agree, the left is very hypocritical. But the left knows what they are. They know they can use these same arguments to their advantage all the time because it rallies the, the, the people, the mob, around them. So Hanson's trying to appeal to the mob against the left. It's not going to work, because the left also hands out stuff, and Hanson would say, we're not going to hand anything out. You see, this is, this is ridiculous. This is where their arguments all fall apart. The plantation owners of old and today's woke California oligarchs apparently found the resulting uh, pyramidal feudal system preferable and politically useful. Of course, the neo-feudal system of the Old South provoked much criticism among, among contemporaries. I mean, like the radical Republicans. I mean, this is who he's talking about, right? So this is, he's basing his entire argument on Charles Sumner. <laughs> uh, you, I mean, this is, this is ex again, exhibit A of what I was talking about yesterday. This is why you need that class. Current urban geographers and journalists such as Joel Kotkin and Edward Ring have argued that California's utopian and globalist agendas neglect freeways and water storage, the modern version of antebellum internal improvements, so often resisted by the South. Why did they resist them, Hanson? Because they were unconstitutional. They didn't resist them in the states. The states built this stuff. 
They resisted federally funded internal improvements. And they wanted to make sure that the ones that were built in the states were paid for and not unprofitable. That were paid for and wouldn't bankrupt the, the economy and society. Well, that's pretty wise, don't you think? You had a lot of Southerners. And look, I'll, I'll give you, you had James DeBow and even William Gilmore Sims was someone who was in favor of uh, diversification of the Southern economy. One other thing that's interesting when you talk about labor, uh, when you look at iron foundries, for example, one of the most uh, famous iron foundries in the South was in Richmond. You want to know what happened there? In order to ensure that the workers were happy and productive, they paid overtime and bonuses to slaves. So slaves were actually getting overtime and bonus money. This is documented, right? And you would find it not just there. There are other places you would find this stuff too. Documented. Amazing. And these, uh, these large plantations that got involved in sugar and cotton production, they would put gins on the plantations. They used industrial equipment. They did all kinds of things. This idea that the South was just... Um, this uh, this place where people you know didn't have any interest in technology or uh, industrialization anything nothing it's completely devoid of any historical example. Contemporary California policies instead reflect the power and globalist concerns of Silicon Valley and the coastal tech and investment wealth that is less focused on the dire housing, transportation, and workplace needs of a shrinking middle class living near them. Apologists for the Southern system, like today's Silicon Valley promoters, offered various schemes to rationalize their, st their static social arrangements. So it is useful to classify these rationalities into two models, the hard and the soft. The hard model justifies the extreme wealth of the oligarchs by appealing to the beneficial effects of global free trade in goods and a large supply of contracted foreign workers to reduce labor costs. Tariffs and other forms of economic protectionism will drive up costs to consumers, they argue. So, I mean, this is amazing. Ter uh, look, Hansen is actually arguing, again, for the 1850s or 1840s and 50s Whig and then Republican model. This is what he's arguing for. Got to have tariffs to draw. I mean, but, but free trade is a bad idea. Because it, I mean, tariffs are better. This idea they're going to drive up costs, that's a bad idea. The soft mod argues that with their nearly unlimited assets, oligarchs can provide paternalistic care to those embedded within the logic of their system. In the 19th century, this feudal-like paternal care was to be provided directly to a servile class by their masters. Now the usual argument is for government intermediaries to augment contractor workers' compensation with various health and welfare programs. So, I mean, he's, he's not incorrect about what he's saying there. There was paternalism, but... Um, this model was actually carried forward into all kinds of companies as well. Look, I mean, when you look at the Southern Industrial Model in the postbellum period, they often talked about paternalism. And I give the example all the time of the Callaway family, who uh, had textile factories in the South, and they, they made it a, a point to take care of their workers because they thought paternalism was important. They thought it was important in building citizens. The formerly conservative pundit Bill Crystal, in a 2017 panel discussion inadvertently summed up elements of both schools of thought by emphasizing the advantages of a two-tier society. So here he is, he's saying, I'm not a neoconservative. Look, I'm not going to side with Bill Crystal. 
In such a feudal system, the native-born middle class were seen as expendable, or rather replaceable, through the perpetual revolving door importation of less expensive immigrant labor. Quote, Look, to be totally honest, if things are so bad, as you say, with the white working class, don't you want to get new Americans in? Basically, if you're in a free society, a capitalist system, after two or three generations of hard work, everyone becomes kind of decadent, lazy, spoiled, whatever. Then luckily you have these two these waves of people coming in from Italy, Ireland, Russia, now Mexico, who really want to work hard and really want to succeed and really want their kids to live better lives than them and aren't sort of cl- uh, clipping coupons or hoping that they can hang on and meanwhile grow up as spoiled kids and so forth. So he's talking about, you know, Hansen sort of is against upward mobility, but um, a lot of these independent farmers, I mean, this farm was passed down and passed down. And of course you had this, this system, not only in the, in the, in the North, but also in the South. Uh, I mean, this is, this is amazing what he's saying here, right? This is absolutely amazing because it's so, again, his, I, I, I Hansen doesn't even realize what he's doing, I don't think. That he's arguing for a 19th century leftist position. That's what he's doing. It will be useful to examine in detail some of the many parallels across time and space between what might be termed the South Carolina system of the old slave South and the California social economic model of Silicon Valley today. So he's going to get into the two systems, the South Carolina system and the California system. Now, I said I was going to cover this in two episodes, and I'm going to. Uh, we've already been doing this for uh, nearly 30 minutes, and I don't want to go really long on these podcasts. So I'm going to cover this. It might even take me three podcasts to get through this piece because there's so much in it. But I'm going to cover hopefully the rest of it tomorrow. If not, it'll drag into next week. But I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>